We are in each other's presence because God is with us and he is binding his church together. So that as we come to worship this morning, beloved, be reminded that our Christ is with us no matter what. And so let's take a few moments to slow down, to quiet our hearts, to ask God to prepare our hearts, to engage him, to engage his word, and to worship him in spirit and in truth this morning. Beloved, hear our God call us to worship this morning. This is from Isaiah chapter 41. Listen to me, my friends, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Beloved, we come to God without fear because our God is with us, which means that we come to God as we are, sinful and broken, and we see that he has actually done something about our sin and our brokenness that he has given us Jesus. And it is by his stripes that we are healed. So we can come and we confess our sin, we confess our brokenness, and see that we are forgiven by the wounds of our Savior. So let's confess together this morning the confession of sin that's in your order of worship. We'll say this out loud together, and then we'll take a few moments to quietly and more specifically uh, bring our sin and our brokenness to the Lord and see that he meets us in the blood of our Savior, Jesus. So let's say this confession together. Gracious God, your faithfulness is evident from generation to generation. You pursue your people even when we wander away from you. We confess that we have been resistant to your pursuit of us. We cling to our desire for control, influence, and autonomy instead of placing our faith and hope in you, faithful God. For Jesus' sake, forgive our sin. Jesus pursued us in our sin and loved us unto death on the cross. Holy Spirit, teach us to see ourselves truly. Make us a people faithfully present, resting in your total faithfulness. Teach us to celebrate that the favor of God is upon us because his wrath has been crucified with Jesus. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly come before your God. And to more specifically, confess your sin and your brokenness and see that your Jesus forgives you and heals you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy, which is fully and finally given to us in your one and only Son, our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, God wants you to hear his assurance of his forgiveness, his assurance of his grace to you and me in Christ. This is the offer of God's forgiveness, the gospel to us in Christ, that we have a God who is merciful and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward his people. As high as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west, so far does our gracious God remove our sin from us all in the blood of Jesus. We are a forgiven people in Christ. And so we are free knowing that God is with us to declare what it is that we believe about what Christ has done for us. And so I'm going to ask us this question and would ask that you please respond with me together. What is it, beloved, that we believe about the work of Christ for us? Christ was crucified, died, and was buried for our sin. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us righteous before God. His resurrection is also a guarantee of our resurrection. Therefore, in this life we now live, Jesus has, by grace, changed our hearts to confess his name and present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. We are also free to flee the temptation of sin and run to Jesus. We are to live knowing that his blood speaks a better word than our sin. Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sin and entering into eternal life. In the life to come, we will reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. We will fully experience the glory for which we were originally made. Beloved, our Christ is alive, and in his resurrection, we are alive and have resurrection life. Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day as we gather to worship and confess our sin and confess our faith and hear from God's word. So it's so good to be with you again. I long for the day, as John Paul does, when we will gather again in this place and worship together, celebrate communion together. Can't wait for that. Uh, We're going to continue on in our series. We're going to look at the book of Esther this morning. I hope that you have been able to take time to read the entire chapter, chapter 9. I'm going to read to you a few verses from this chapter that summarize what go on in this entire book and in this chapter. And then I'm going to pray, and then we will dive in to understand this passage together. Uh, There's one point that I would love for you to write down if you take notes, or one thought that you can hopefully, by God's grace, lodge in your mind and your heart about what this passage is talking about, and that thought is this. This passage is meant to teach us that the gospel is subversive. Jesus is subversive. And what that means is that it comes to us in, from many different directions. Uh, it's always working. Jesus is always working. It means that oftentimes uh, what Jesus does in being subversive is turn everything upside down. So the, the gospel is subversive. That's what I hope that you take away today. So let's look together at Esther 9. I'm going to read verses 20 through 22 and then verses 29 through 32. And before I do that, I want to say two things. Uh, And I want you to know that uh, uh, I need to clear up some things from comments that I've gotten in some emails uh, and texts and calls. Um, And I need to tell you, number one, that this tan is not spray tan. This is real. So that's a fact. I need you to know that. And number two, it is true. John Paul has been trying to convince me that I have a face for radio. So I just want you to know that. This is what I have to deal with every week. 
So, yeah, enter into this world of COVID-19 on the pastoral staff. It's not pretty. So I need, to, I need to clear that up before we go on. All right. That said, let's look at Esther 9, verses 20 through 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of this month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now let's look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. These were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offering and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are caring for us every day more than we could ever imagine, oftentimes in ways that we are not even aware of. We thank you for the beautiful weather that we have had, the ability that we have to go outside, the ability that we have to be with our families, the ability that we have to reach out to others through call and text and FaceTime and Zoom and the other things. And we thank you, Lord, that you are still advancing your glory, advancing your purposes through everything. So help us as we look at this, your book, as we look at this, your story, to be strengthened and encouraged in you. Help us to put less and less confidence in self and more and more confidence in you. We pray that you would help us to see Christ in this story and that our lives would be changed and that we would desire to live for him and we would desire by the work of your grace and the work of your spirit to be more like our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Have you ever had the thought, where's God? Have you ever felt like God maybe wasn't there? Perhaps some of you during this time have wondered, where is God? What is he doing? Maybe you've wondered what in the world is going on. Well, when we look at this story, the book of Esther, you need to remember that this entire book is the only book in the Bible in which God's name isn't mentioned. Now, we're going to learn a lot about that as we look through this story together. But know this about the story of Esther. The story takes place in the Persian Empire, actually in the capital city of the Persian Empire, in Susa. And it's in the Persian Empire not in Jerusalem, it's in the Persian Empire where we still have a remnant of Jewish people, a remnant of God's people. Remember last week we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah and many of God's people returned from the Babylonian, now Persian Empire, to go back home to the homeland of Jerusalem. 
But we still have a lot of God's people in the Persian Empire. They stayed. They didn't return. And that teaches us something really important about this story. Not just that it didn't happen in Jerusalem, but it did happen in the Persian Empire. But it also reminds us that God's people's greatest and ultimate hope was not to live in a little strip of land in the Middle East. It was to be faithful wherever God had placed them. So this morning, I want to look at this story with you. And it's going to have four chapters. The story is going to have four chapters. And then we're going to look at takeaways. And there are two takeaways that I want you to wrestle with. And I hope God, by his grace, will wrestle with you with those takeaways as they have with me. So let's dive into the story. Let's think about these four chapters together. Chapter number one, there is a new queen. You see, following the reign of Cyrus, which we looked at last week in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember Cyrus made the decree. Following Cyrus, one of those that succeeded him was named Ahasuerus, or his Greek name is Xerxes. And Xerxes ruled this Persian empire. This took place about 60 years after Cyrus's decree. So Xerxes is on the throne, and the first two chapters of Esther tell you that he decided to throw a gigantic party in order to show off his wealth, in order to show off all the things that he had, in order to show people that he was generous and kind and, and, why, and, and, and reasons why people should follow him and his leadership in the Persian Empire. 187-day party. Now, at the end of that party, on the last seven days, what the king decided to do was this. He wanted everyone in the empire to have this build-up to these last few days in which he asked his queen to come and appear, to make an appearance in front of all those who were in attendance, celebrating He asked his queen to make an appearance because she was so beautiful. He wanted everyone to see that he had this gorgeous wife. Well, the queen decided to reject his offer. So she said, no, king, no Xerxes, I will not come to your party. So the king promptly dismissed her, divorced her, and put her away. And for sake of time, what that meant is this. The king carried out basically... A full year of The Bachelor. So he gathered up beautiful women from all over his empire in order to find a new queen. And the one contestant that won was named Esther. Esther became the new queen. The queen to the king of the Persian Empire. Now here's a little background on Esther. Esther's parents died when she was very young. She was raised by her uncle, who was named Mordecai, and they were very close. And because Esther was on the inside of the Persian Empire, it meant that Mordecai was on the inside of the Persian Empire. One day, Mordecai overheard an assassination plot being formed to take out Xerxes. So, Mordecai, having access to the inn of the kingdom, told Esther that this was happening. And Esther told the king and those who were around him, and the king's life was spared. So Esther is already serving the king and already in his good graces. That's chapter one. Chapter two of the story is this. 
anger. Now, the king, Xerxes, had a right-hand man. His name was Haman. Haman was full of arrogance and pride. He was power-hungry. He wanted everyone to follow everything he said. He wanted the applause of every person that he came in contact with. So maybe it doesn't surprise you. I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with this story. But Haman did not get along with Mordecai at all. Matter of fact, Haman was outraged because of Mordecai. So Haman goes to the king, being the right-hand man to the king, and he says, Xerxes, you need to make a decree. You need to make an unchangeable decree to wipe out all of the Jews. Now, you see, Mordecai was a Jew. Esther was also Jewish, even though she kept that from the king. So Haman convinced Xerxes to make an unchangeable decree to wipe out the Jews. And that meant literally hunting them down, killing, plundering all of their resources. Now in the Persian Empire, it's also important that you know this. In the Persian Empire, whenever that type of decree was made, one that was unalterable and unchangeable, they decided when to start carrying out the decree in this way. They took some die and they rolled the dice. And the dice were labeled with each month of, each month of the year. And when the dice were rolled and they landed on a particular month, whatever month they landed on, that was the month that that unchangeable decree was to be carried out. And it just so happened that it would be 11 months in the future. 11 months. The clock was now counting down until the day that this unchangeable decree could be carried out and the Jewish people could be annihilated. Well, not only is there a new queen, not only is there anger, but there is also a third chapter to this story, and it's the chapter of risk. You see, Esther was Jewish. And when this decree was pronounced and the clock was ticking, Esther was incredibly nervous. So she went to her trusted friend. She went to the father figure in her life. She went to Mordecai. And she said, Mordecai, what am I going to do about this? What, what do we do? Mordecai says some pretty famous words to her. Esther, perhaps you were in the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther took those words to heart and she decided to make a plan. So here's what she did. She approached the king. And oh, by the way, that was an unbelievable risk. That was a very risky move. You see, in the Persian Empire, if you were to approach the king especially for personal matters, matters of personal interest. The king, the king could wipe you out. Here's the scene. Esther approaches the king's chambers and the king had a scepter. And when she would appear at the door, the king would hold that scepter and he would either say, enter, or die. Esther took a huge risk 
by approaching the king. The story tells us that he said, yes, come on in, Esther. What's going on? She took another risk by sharing this personal information. King, I'm, I'm Jewish. You've made this unalterable decree. When the king heard that from Esther, he was very, very angry. The interesting thing as a side note is that he didn't repent. He didn't think, oh, that was a dumb decree. He said that he got really angry and he got upset at Haman. And he knew that he couldn't change the decree. And so he did what we oftentimes do when we have matters like this. You make an addendum. So Xerxes made an addendum to his unalterable decree. And the addendum was this, that the Jewish people in 11 months could fight and defend themselves. It meant that if you were going to carry out the decree of the king and plunder the Jewish people for their goods, you'd be facing a fight. Well, after Esther approached the king, what she did in her plan was this. She invited Xerxes and Haman and others in close quarters with the king to a banquet. And at that banquet, the whole purpose of that banquet was not only to have good food, but the purpose of that banquet was to invite the king, Xerxes, and Haman to a second banquet. At that second banquet, Esther said to them, we really need to change what's going on. And that was the time in which the king decided all these things. And Haman was so excited. Haman was so excited, and that may not sound, may not sound like it fits at all, but he was so excited to be included in this banquet that he actually went out and made this gigantic stake about 30 feet high because he was all ready for war. He was ready to hang Jews on this stake, in particular, to hang Mordecai if he could. Well, not only do we have a new queen and anger and risk, but we also have the fourth chapter, a sleepless night. In between those two banquets, Xerxes had a hard time sleeping. So what he did is he woke up in the middle of the night and he decided to read back through the minutes of the empire. He decided to read back through the history of the actions that had taken place in the Persian empire. And what he found is that what Mordecai had done in preserving his life had never been honored. And so he summoned Haman and he told Haman, Haman, we need to honor Mordecai for what he did in preserving my life. And of course, Haman was absolutely beside himself. He didn't like Mordecai at all. But nevertheless, this is when the gigantic twist of the whole book happens. When the king told Haman that he had to honor Mordecai, what happened ultimately was this. Haman ended up dying on the stake that he had prepared for the Jewish people and Mordecai. And Mordecai ultimately became the king, Xerxes, right-hand man. So he was there with incredible privilege, with incredible place of honor and authority, right with the king. Well, that's the story. That's the story that takes place here in this book of Esther. So let's look at the takeaways. And there are two of these takeaways. The first takeaway is this. As we read through the story of Esther and process what's going on in this story, let's learn and continue to learn how to read our Bibles well. 
Let's continue to learn how to read our Bibles well. We don't have to try to read these stories and try to fix everything in them. We don't have to try to clean up what's going on in these 10 chapters. Meaning, we don't have to say that what Esther did when she was a contestant on The Bachelor was right. It means that we don't have to look at Mordecai and say, yeah, Mordecai didn't like Haman and Haman didn't like Mordecai. And there was a lot of racism going on there because of their family histories. It means that we don't have to look at these stories and think, well, yeah, a lot of Jewish people died. Yeah, they weren't wiped out, but many of them were killed. It means we can take the story as is. Here's the point. We don't have to clean up the story. When God records the scriptures that he inspires, it doesn't mean that he endorses every action that people take. It means that he writes the Bible, and Esther in particular, as is. God gives us a more realistic, honest, truthful portrayal of life than anything else that we can ever read. And it doesn't mean that he endorses everything that takes place through Esther's life or Haman or Mordecai and racism and people die. It means that God gives us the story as real as it gets. And we ought to take all of that in because it really matters. So the first takeaway, let's, let's learn to read our Bibles well. Here's the second takeaway. This whole story is not about new moralisms. It is about Jesus. This whole story is not moralisms, but Jesus. You know, the point as you read through Esther is not, ah, I need to be more like Esther. The whole point of this book is not take more risks in your life. Although it may be good for some of you to take more risks in your life. Maybe it's good for some of you to take less risks in your life. But that's not the ultimate point of this story. The ultimate point is not be like Mordecai, who has lots of wisdom, who is able to discern what's going on and then advise, even though all of us need more wisdom and all of us need more discernment about what's going on in our lives. The point of Esther, the point of the book is not moralism. It is Jesus. You see, what this passage, what this book teaches us is that Jesus is relevant at every moment. Now, put yourself, put yourself in the Persian Empire. Put yourself in the capital city. Put yourself anywhere in the Persian Empire and think about the reality of the decree that Xerxes made. The countdown's on. In 11 months, someone may be coming for you and your life and your family and your loved ones. And yeah, ultimately you end up being able to defend yourself and that would curb some of those who may come after you, but still, what would it be like for you to live under that decree? What would it be like for us to live knowing in a sense that in 11 months, I have to be hyper aware of my life all the time? Knowing that we don't always know the future. We don't know what's going on even every day. 
Friends, we have a Savior that's relevant every moment of our lives for all the things that we can't see coming and anticipate. We have a Savior that's relevant every moment. Do you remember Jesus when he came? If you read John's gospel, which we did together, do you remember there were times when he would say, my hour has not yet come? And then later in the book, he would say, my hour has come. Jesus knew what was going to happen with his own life. And he willingly came to lay down his life for you and me, knowing that his time had come to suffer and die for you and for me knowing that he had lived this life of perfection for you and for me. And the benefit of that, the benefit of having an every, uh, Jesus is relevant for every moment of our lives, the benefit of that is that he is with me all the time, every moment of the day. It means that he will pursue me with goodness and mercy my entire life. It means that he's numbered my days and numbered the hairs on my head. Jesus is relevant every moment of our lives. Secondly, this. Jesus and judgment. When you think about Esther approaching the king in the king's chambers, and when you think about entering into that doorway, the threshold of the king's chambers, and, and, and looking at the scepter, the scepter that indicated life or death. Friends, you need to remember more deeply, I need to remember more deeply, that Jesus faced that scepter of life and death. He really took on all of the wrath of God. He absorbed it all for you and for me. So there's never a charge that anybody can bring against us. Even our greatest enemy has nothing to bring against us because Jesus faced life and death for us. And not only did he take the judgment of God, but he actually turns that scepter into a rod and a staff that comfort us. He turns it into a loving, a loving disposition that we can have toward the Father, knowing that the Father loves us as his own children, and he disciplines us, and he corrects us, and he leads us, and he encourages us, and he gives us promises, and one day we'll be with him. And finally, Remember that Jesus is absolutely subversive. He is working in everything and in every way, oftentimes turning everything upside down. You see, you realize that the whole book is leading up to this feast, the feast that we read about in chapter 9, the feast of Purim. Everything is leading up to this feast. Do you remember how it was determined when this feast would start? It would start after the dice were rolled, and then it determined that it would be 11 months. Do you remember that? Well, can you imagine what would have been going on again 
in your mind and heart, if you were a Jew living in those 11 months, waiting, you wouldn't know what's going on in the kingdom. You wouldn't know what's going on in the palace until much later. You were not privy to all these things that were happening with Esther and Mordecai, with Haman and with others. We wouldn't be privileged to any of that information at all until much later. And no doubt we would be wondering, where is God? Where is he? Has he left us? We sure feel like he's not present. This decree has been made and now we're going to die. We're going to be wiped out. But by the end of the story, God's people saw what was actually happening. And I hope you will too. You see, the Hebrew word for dice is poor. The feast of Purim. By the end of the story, God's people understood in a very profound way that yes, the king and Haman and perhaps others rolled the dice and found out this is the month in which we are going to execute all the Jews and hunt them down. But for God's people, they realized that the die was rolled, but God was in absolute control. God was overturning God was caring for his people. He was preserving them. He was acting on their behalf. He was changing the hearts and lives of the king and those who worked with him. He was taking people out here and there. He was acting on behalf of his people. And friends, all of that is true for us in Christ. And that means that the day is coming in which we will have a celebration and a feast too. And we will celebrate everything. Because even though we won't know every detail of everything, we will see more clearly how God was orchestrating everything in our lives personally, everything in, in our loved one's lives and every event in history, whether it's what we're going through now or anything else. And we will see how God was glorifying himself through it all. And we will celebrate. That's good news. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it reveals Jesus to us. That even in the Old Testament, we get to see and get to hope for the coming of Christ. And we get to see what he was going to do. And we get glimpses and types and shadows of the real thing. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to draw us to Christ and help us to desire to be more like Christ. Help us to rest in the reality that we are known by our Father. Every detail. And we are loved. And we pray this. We pray this because we long for the day when we will celebrate it all. And we will rejoice that our God is sovereign and real and powerful and glorious. And we pray in his name. Amen. Friends, I want to remind you that there will be a little hymn singing at 5 o'clock today. If you come back to our website at 5, Robbie and Tom will play some music for us. And we can sing along with them. That will be today at 5 o'clock. So if, you'd like, if you're interested in that, come back to our website at 5. It will be right there just like this service is. But... No matter what happens this week, no matter what goes on, 
Live by the promises of God. Entrust yourself to him afresh. Abandon your thoughts and your ways and your plans and receive his for you. Receive his blessing, knowing this is what he has for you in Christ. And if you have not given your life to Jesus, today is a good day to do that. Today is the best day to abandon your hope you have in yourself and to find it in the God who controls it all. So hear this, friends, and by the Spirit's power, live like you believe it. The Lord your God is going to bless you. He is also going to keep you. His smile is upon you this week, and he will be gracious to you. His presence is with you. And one day, one day, when he makes all things new, there will be peace. And he will be glorified and seen as all in all. All because of our Christ. He's alive. Amen. Go in his peace.